From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us, and you can always find Tony online on Gab at Tony underscore Perkins. We encourage you to stay in touch with Family Research Council updates by texting six. Texting the word STAND to 67742. Again, that's the word STAND to 67742. You just never know who's going to get canceled and when, and that's a way to guarantee you're going to get updates from the Family Research Council. Also, you can find every Washington Watch program on the Stand Firm app at the App Store and on Google Play, and we encourage you to do that. Lots happening to discuss on the program today. We are going to go to Arkansas. A bill prohibiting chemical and surgical castration of children was passed by the legislature. It was vetoed by the governor, and then that veto was overridden by the legislature. We're going to talk about all of that and what it means for Arkansas and the rest of the country. Uh, We're also going to go to Arizona. A city there is pushing back against a local ordinance threatening religious freedom and women's sports. At the end of the program, we're going to talk to Stephen Sukup, who's the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, about what Major League Baseball is doing and their uh, relocation of the All-Star Game from Georgia, and generally what corporate America is doing with its radical shift to the left, or so it seems. Is that true? Does the data support that? We're going to talk about that with Stephen Sukup at the end of the program. But first, to start off, today, Georgia has been taking a lot of heat over its new election laws. The left has been accusing them of being draconian, the Jim Crow on steroids, voter suppression, racist, an attack on our democracy, and atrocity. Those are just some of the labels that have been referred, that have been used to refer to Georgia's new election laws. And some corporations like MLB, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, they are buying into this narrative and frankly helping to drive it. But what exactly did Georgia's law do? And what are they taking issue with? What are they concerned about? Um, well, to talk about all of this is the Heritage Foundation senior legal fellow Hans von Spakovsky, who is a former commissioner at the Federal Election Commission, as well as a former deputy of justice attorney. Hans, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me back. Well, we're glad to have you because we need some uh, we need some clarity on this. This, uh, I, you know, the bombs being lobbed from both corners of this particular uh, boxing match. It's hard to understand which way is up, which information is true, uh, which information is not true. And maybe you could start off by telling us whether it's Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines or Major League Baseball, what are they taking issue with exactly? Well, first of all, everything that's being said in the criticism is completely wrong. In fact, I think this may end up getting labeled as the biggest lie of 2021. And, in fact, it's so bad that even the Washington Post, which, as you know, is a very liberal newspaper and wholly and entirely supported Joe Biden in his presidential run, they actually gave Joe Biden four Pinocchios in their fact check for uh, making claims like saying that um, uh, they were cutting down on uh, early voting days in uh, in uh, Georgia, that they were 
cutting back on the amount of time polls are open. I mean, it was just one thing after another like that wasn't true. The biggest – look, it's a big bill, but the biggest thing that these companies have been concentrating on apparently has been Georgia's voter ID requirement. And what's so odd about that is that Georgia's had a voter ID requirement in place for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Now, it only applies to in-person voting. And what this reform bill did is it extended it to absentee balloting. Um, but there are a number of other states that do that. And the voter ID requirement that Georgia has, it's in line yes. with that of numerous other states, including, by the way, Colorado, which is where yeah. Major League Baseball moved his all-star game to. Where they moved the game, right. And, and Hans, I've had uh, conversations online and elsewhere about this with people who are supportive of Major League Baseball's decisions. And they, they claim, I've heard this argument uh, many times, well, nobody is opposed to voter ID. That's not really the problem. The problem is there's a bunch of other stuff that they did that are going to disproportionately affect uh, African-American communities in Georgia. And the real purpose of this is to suppress African-American turnout. What's your response? What are they referring to? Is there any merit to that argument at all? No, there isn't. Um, uh, apparently, there were there were these uh, critics were going around saying, oh, they were going to cut back on the early voting period. That, in fact, is not true at all. In fact, the state added uh, another day so that there are 17 days of early voting. Compare that to the state of New York, which I think has about half that much, and yet New York is the corporate headquarters of Major League Baseball. So, again, they they simply cannot actually rationally point to a single provision in the bill that's somehow going to keep uh, black residents of the state from voting. Look, what folks have to understand about this is that, look, these are the same kind of arguments that have now have been made for years by folks on the left about um, things like voter ID. Uh, the ACLU actually filed a lawsuit when Georgia first passed its, its uh, voter ID law. They lost the lawsuit. They lost it because the judge in the case, who, by the way, was a, appointed by a Democratic president, pointed out that after two years of litigation, they were unable to produce a single witness who would be unable to vote because of the voter ID law. And we know it doesn't keep black residents of the state from voting because it's been in place for 10 years. We have 10 years' worth of turnout data. And not only did the turnout of black voters in the state not go down, it increased dramatically. They've had record increases in voter registration and turnout in the state, including of uh, black voters. So it's they're just making these complaints up out of thin air. Well, I got another one for you, and then I want to go into why they're making this up out of, out of thin air. I've also heard that basically this is a coordinated effort by Republicans to essentially starve or dehydrate people while they uh, are waiting in line to vote um, <laughs> by making it illegal to give people water. Um, and so this is a another just cruel voter suppression tactic. What 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 are they? What's with this idea that it's illegal to give people water while they're waiting in line to vote? Yeah, that is just another ridiculous claim. Look, Georgia has a law that 
every other state in the country also has that prohibits what's called electioneering or campaigning inside a polling place or within a certain distance of both the polling place and voters standing in line. In Georgia, it's no campaigning within 150 feet of the building and no campaign campaigning by candidates and others within 25 feet of voters standing in line. Uh, just like the state of New York, um, in fact, the legislators copied this from New York. They simply added a line to that anti-electionary provision saying, you know, not only can candidates not campaign in polling places, they cannot give money or gifts to voters, including food and drink. Now, like I said, this is exactly like New York statute. Oh, I'm sorry. New York statute adds tobacco to that list. Okay. <laughs> not just food and drink. Okay. But Was that an issue is in New York? Prevent, uh, well, I guess it must have been. Yeah. Um, the, the point of this is to prevent campaigns and candidates from influencing voters. You know, it's to prevent a candidate from showing up at a polling place with a truckload of pizzas and start handing them out to um, voters to try to influence them to vote. Yeah. The law does not prevent um, the voters from bringing their own water and food and snacks with them. It doesn't prevent election officials from providing water, food, and snacks. And so it, it, the idea that it's somehow going to keep voters uh, – it's going to – voters are going to uh, die of thirst or something is just absurd. Like I said, it, it, this isn't any different than what other states have yeah. done in this area. It prevents campaigns from trying to yeah. effectively purchase someone's vote while they're standing in line. And I think we can all understand if that were legal, uh, you can see why it would be a problem if if campaigns were allowed to give gifts to people while they're standing in line to vote. Then you know the the, the ballot box become or the, the polling place becomes a circus of just free gifts being handed out. Now that can't you know especially at the presidential level, people are spending literally thousands of dollars per vote. Now, Hans. Uh, in the last couple minutes here, why has this become the um, the the outrage that it that it has been? If the law that pa that Georgia passed is actually uh, so similar to laws that exist in states throughout the country, blue states and red states alike, why have they turned this into what it has become? Because they're trying to use it as a political propaganda weapon. Uh, the left, the Democratic Party, all of their allies have been trying to paint anyone who believes in election security and election integrity, uh, in this case the Republicans down in Georgia, as being racist, as trying to keep people out of the polls, even though they know it's not really true because they think it's a potent political weapon that helps them raise money. And frankly, I also think they're doing this intentionally. I mean, they, they, they intentionally spread lies about what this yeah. bill actually does, I think, to uh, undergird and support uh, trying to convince Democrats in the U.S. Senate to pass H.R. 1. You know, that's the yeah. that's the big bill that's now in the Senate uh, passed the House that would be a complete federal takeover do of you, the administration do, of elections. Yeah. Do you think this has anything to do uh, the, the kind of the, the Jim Crow language, are they are they trying to get the filibuster passed as well? Do you think that has any connection to yes. this? Yes, I, I think it is in particular because um, they want to get rid of the filibuster so they can really have one-party rule.
so they can put through, shove through any legislation they want uh, without any needing any bipartisan control. And again, they're trying to paint this picture that it's 1920 in places like Georgia, uh, which of course is not true, and use that to pass H.R. 1 and get rid of the filibuster. So effectively, if they can convince everyone that this is a return to Jim Crow in Georgia, then they can convince the country to get rid of the filibuster so that we can put H.R. 1 in, so then the states no longer have the freedom to govern their own elections, and then essentially it's the Democrats get to do everything forever. Do you think, Hans, it's going to work? I actually think they've overplayed their hand. Um, I, I've actually been uh, – I'm optimistic because what I have seen is, for example, legislators in Georgia and elsewhere fighting back. They haven't retreated like you have seen people do in the past when false charges of racism are put against them. In fact, they've been fighting back, and I think that's actually a good sign. I agree with you. That is a good sign, and we are seeing some pushback um, from – So far, I don't see any signs in Georgia that anybody intends to cave, and I think we can be very, very thankful for that. Hans von Spakovsky, thank you so much for your time joining us on Washington Watch. Thank you. Sure, thanks for having me. And and we are going to continue to talk about um, national pressure being exerted on state legislators, state elected officials. On the other side, we're going to go to Arkansas, uh, and we're going to talk about a bill that was passed by the legislature vetoed by the governor then the legislature came back and overrode that veto arkansas has become the first state in the union to make chemical and surgical castration of minors who think they are transgender illegal we'll talk about it after the break hey matt hey hannah what's going on why so gloomy well i'm a little disappointed i had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time and i just didn't do it oh yeah What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org 
slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Yesterday, in the Arkansas legislature, they overrode Governor Asa Hutchinson's last-minute veto on the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, which is the SAFE Act, which seeks to protect vulnerable minors from experimental gender transition procedures while also ensuring that the government never uses tax dollars to pay for experiments that will damage the lives of children. In quick succession, the House voted 72 to 25, and the Senate voted 25 to 8 to override the governor's veto. The bill will take effect later this summer, but will undoubtedly face legal challenges. So the battle is not over. With me now to talk about the SAFE Act and what's next is Jerry Cox, founder and president of Family Council in Little Rock, Arkansas. Jerry, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, hey, Joseph, it's a pleasure to be on the program, and it's a pleasure to be talking about this great victory. Well, we are we are uh, pleased to be talking with you about it. And first, I should say congratulations um, to you and your team. And I know that, that when you get legislation into law, it's always the culmination of a lot of work and contributions uh, from a lot of people. This is probably a more... Um, this may be more of a roller coaster than other bills that you've worked on in in the past. What's your feeling at this point, given how you've gotten to uh, the to this point? You know, Joseph, uh, when you said um, team effort, I believe, or something to that effect, boy, is that ever true? Because first of all, we had a really good law drafted. I mean, it's rock solid, and then we had excellent sponsors in the House and in the Senate. Uh, then we were able to bring in experts from around the country and here in the state to testify in committee, and they made such compelling arguments. And then we had the right mix of lawmakers. I mean, elections do matter. And uh, we had really good lawmakers that just said, we're going to do this no matter what. And then finally, we had a ton of good people out there around the state and, and the country that called in and said, vote for this bill. And so this is like fighting a war. You have to have everything. You need the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. You need all the right you know, weapons and everything to, to go to war. And we, and we were able to do that, and it all came, all came together just right. And, you know, when, when the governor's override vote in the House, mm-hmm. we had two votes more to override his veto than we did on the original bill. What do you that attribute that to? The, res- the resolve of the, yeah. of the legislature. What do you attribute that to, that you got more votes to override the veto than you did on an initial passage? 
I think the legislature gets it. I think they realize that the lives of children are hanging in the balance, and they are absolutely fed up with people on the left somehow trying to just force that agenda on us and somehow call this kind of stuff health care. That is ridiculous. It's nonsensical. And the legislature said, enough of that. We are going to stand up, and they did. And hats off to them. I mean, we need to thank them every step of the way because they did the right thing. Jerry, what what were some of the misrepresentations that you heard in that journey of <laughs> legislative debate, the governor vetoes it, then the legislature takes it back up again? Oh, my. Uh, this is parental rights, Joseph. Don't you know? To have your little boy changed to a girl, to have your little girl changed into a boy, it's a parental rights issue. Uh, That's what the governor said. That's what other people said. Or they said, oh, this is health care. People need to be able to have their their child changed to the opposite sex because, after all, it's health care. And I think how heartless to do that to a child. Grown people are supposed to protect children, not mutilate them. And that's what this bill prevents. And it's a good law. It's good for children. And uh, how people can call it anything else, I do not understand. Well, you make a good point, Jerry, because the many studies on this subject that have have confirmed that when a child does not uh, take steps to transition, uh, their gender dysphoria goes away in somewhere between 80 and 95% of cases when they don't take steps to make that transition. Gender dysphoria is something you experience for a moment, and then it goes away as puberty approaches and, and a child goes through puberty. So you're looking at a situation where when they transition, when they take steps, stop puberty, uh, get surgery before that happens, um, for 85 to 90 percent of those young people, they are doing something that would not be necessary if they had just waited. And this law just says, no, they they need to wait. They need to let that process uh, play out before they render themselves infertile and do other things. But, Jerry, you you talked about uh, the the governor and kind of what's happening there. Um, he all he made this point that the conservative thing to do is have the government not get involved in that because conservatives are small government people. Therefore, they should not want the government interfering with a child's ability to castrate himself when he's 13. Um, what's your response to that? <laughs> well, those are some of the same arguments that people have made regarding keeping abortion legal. Yes, it, it ought to be between a woman and her God and the doctor or something like that. And we know that there's a lot more at stake here, uh, you know, with this kind of uh, reassignment uh, efforts and also, obviously, with abortion as well. You know, some of that talk about people going to commit suicide and all that, uh, Joseph, you and I both know the studies have shown that, yes, people with gender dysphoria do have a higher suicide rate. But if you if you go through the transition treatments and make yourself into the opposite sex, yeah. guess what? The suicide tendencies don't go away. It's still 20 times higher. Hasn't been addressed. Yeah. 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 And so there's just so many things about this that were just not true that people kept repeating. And, again, I'm just glad our lawmakers were able to see through all that fog and yeah. do the right thing. And, and tell me that once the governor overrode the veto, the legislature act quickly, acted quickly. How hard was it to convince the legislators that they needed to override this veto? Easy. It was very easy. And uh, Representative Lundstrom, Robin Lundstrom, she is like General Patton when it comes to getting things done. And and she, just to remind the audience, she was the 
she was the sponsor of this bill in the House. Yes, uh, she was the House sponsor and the primary lead on this, and she's just amazing. So she went plowing through there and got it done. So hats off to her. Jerry, very quickly, what does this mean for uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson, do you think? Well, I guess we'll see going forward. I wish he would have signed the bill. That would have been the, the good thing to do, but he didn't. And you know what? It's going to become law now anyway, and that's what counts. All right. Jerry Cox, Family Council, thank you so much for your time and your work on this effort. Godspeed to you. Thank you, Joseph. Now, coming up, we're going to go to Arizona. A grassroots effort in one city there is trying to protect girls' bathrooms, locker rooms, and sports. They had a major accomplishment last week. We'll talk about it next. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Last month, by a 5-2 to two vote, the City Council of Mesa, Arizona, made a unilateral decision to pass a SOGI, which stands for Sexual Orientation Gender Identity Ordinance, that contains broad and vague language that could result in fines of up to $2,500 for those accused of violating it. Now, to overturn the ordinance, around 9,100 signatures from Mesa residents were needed in 30 days. On Thursday, the deadline for submission of sig signatures, they submitted 11,505 signatures. So now, the residents of Mesa will get a chance to have their voices heard. 
With me now to talk about the ordinance and the grassroots effort in Mesa is Kathy Herod, president of Center for Arizona Policy. Kathy, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thanks, Joseph. Glad to be on with you. We are glad to have you. Now, tell me a little bit about the, the the background of this. The Mesa City Council voted for this. Was this a surprise to you? Tell us a little bit about Mesa. Sure. Well, Mesa is within Maricopa County and adjacent to Phoenix and Tempe and, and Chandler and Gilbert. And the Mesa mayor, John Giles, has been trying to get a non-discrimination ordinance through his city since probably 2013, 2014. Um, the last election changed some of the votes on the council, so he finally had the votes to get through his non-discrimination ordinance. Now, Mesa is thought to be largely a conservative city. It is a um, largely, it probably has a significant percentage of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of Mormons. And so a lot of this effort, I think, has been to pass a SOGI in a city that's thought to be conservative and to have the appearance of striking the balance between protecting the religious freedom rights, the private property rights, the women's girl, uh, and girls' safety mm-hmm. and privacy, um, while also giving protections or non-discrimination protections to those that are LGBTQ. Of course, the ordinance does not do that. So at the, at the national level, we're seeing this debate about the Equality Act and also this Fairness for All concept. Is this MESA ordinance more like a Fairness for All as opposed to the Equality Act, or is it the really bad Equality Act version? I would say it's a Fairness for All more than it probably is an Equality Act. I haven't compared the language. Okay. But if, if those will remember a Utah, what we call the Utah Compromise, right. when the state of Utah passed a, a non-discrimination law, on sexual orientation, gender identity, it to me it, it's a Utah compromise at the city level. Right. Okay. Now, what's your what's your take on how a, a, a supposedly conservative city gets a city council that would pass something like this that would be so concerning for religious freedom? Well, I think it takes years of work. I think that we I think it's what we see in other jurisdictions throughout the country where the LGBT community is working in overdrive, um, working very diligently to pass local measures. They've not been able to pass a statewide law in Arizona. They do not have the votes to pass a statewide law in Arizona. So they are trying to go city by city, and they are co-opting um, you know, Republicans, and it's all under the guise of diversity. And, and, and really, in the as with so many of these other measures, we're not hearing, oh, here is, you know, Joe Smith, who was discriminated against, who could not get employment, could not get housing, yeah. you know, could not get services. You know, they're, they're not bringing in any real cases of discrimination. So, again, we see it, it's being used as a sword to go after people of faith and people who yeah. want to uh, determine how to conduct their business. And that's a really important point, that there are no examples being presented by the city council that would explain why they feel like this is this is important. But to me, this also highlights, um, for those of us who just care for the vo- average voter out there, this is why you have to pay attention to, to local elections and to local mm-hmm. politics, because they, the, the left is prioritizing this. And if we pretend that it doesn't matter, uh, soon we will learn that it does matter. Now, Kathy, there's good news in all of this, too. So tell us the, the response the grassroots response to this, um, the signature. How did that come together so that this is actually going to be something the citizens of Mesa get to vote on? Well, the citizens of Mesa were offended that the council rushed this through. The mayor likes to say that he consulted with all these different groups and all of that. 
but the language was finalized before we were even known that knew about it. The mayor actually apologized to me that he kept meaning to bring me into the discussion, but somehow managed to never do so. Mm-hmm. But the, it, this was truly a grassroots effort. This was the people in Mesa. This was not something that Center for Arizona Policy was driving. Our team was not out going door to door getting signatures. This was a true grassroots organic effort where people worked their tails off to get the signatures and turn them in within 30 days. Was, um, it, was so this churches? Amazing. No, it was certainly not churches. Um, that I, I'm not aware of any church in the city of Mesa that was promoting the signatures on the referral petitions. So who was it? This was just moms and dads and people Residents. who, okay. Yeah, it's. Yeah, uh, activists. I mean, I think Mesa is does have a number of conservative activists. I would say probably um, those who have gotten in, more involved politically um, through the Trump years. So it's people yeah. who understood that this was violating rights and that they wanted to take action. Now, Kathy, you've been doing this for a while. Do you do you see that the fact that this was not kind of this was a, a a bottom up effort in Mesa? Do you see that as evidence that the public is becoming aware of why ordinances like this are a problem? Yes, and I believe that citizens in general are wanting to be more engaged in decisions that are affecting their lives. Well, we are thankful that uh, that they do, that they that they want to uh, make a difference in this. And, and Kathy, we're thankful to you for taking some time to join us today. Appreciate it very much. Thanks so much, Joseph. Bye bye. We are going to continue talking about um, well. Bullying by the left in one sense. Coming up, the Major League Baseball decision to pull the 2021 All-Star Game out of Georgia is just the tip of an iceberg that's threatening the nation and the freedoms we cherish. My next guest will be giving us a bigger picture of what's going on and what can be done. We are going to talk about uh, corporate bullying, the corporate wokeism after the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication, 
clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Now, at the beginning of the program today, we talked about what's happening in Georgia and the details of the law that they passed and whether or not it is actually as outrageous as the left claims it to be. And Hans von Spakovsky from the Heritage Foundation did a good job of point by point kind of addressing the myths that are currently being perpetuated about whether this Georgia law is actually a return to Jim Crow laws. Uh, the short answer is no, it's nothing like that at all. Um, but now we're going to talk a little bit about the corporate response to this, because, of course, this became a really big story when Major League Baseball decided that they were going to move their 2021 All-Star game out of Atlanta, and now they have decided apparently to move it to Denver, Colorado. It seems that more corporations are going woke in the way that MLB appears to be with this move. My next guest has actually written a book that was published in February about how the political left is harnessing the power of business and especially capital markets to advance overtly and exclusively political ends with an eye toward unconstrained control over every aspect of our lives. And he says a politicized corporate America threatens our nation, the freedoms we all cherish, and the fundamentals of capitalism itself. With me now to talk about his latest book is Steve Sukup, vice president and publisher of The Political Forum, as well as the author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. Steve, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you very much for having me. We're glad to have you, and we're so thankful that you've dug into this issue because it's something, it's a question that I know a lot of people are asking. Um, to start, when did you first start seeing a move of corporate America to the left? Well, uh, to, be, to be perfectly blunt, uh, I, I, I started seeing it more than 20 years ago. Uh, when I started in the financial services business, uh, in the mid-1990s, I joined an award-winning uh, Washington research office uh, at a large uh, brokerage house. And within five years, um, our work, which focused primarily on uh, the, the risks that corruption posed to American business and to American capital markets, uh, was no longer well-received by 
uh, our superiors, um, mm-hmm. and they uh, had a little talk with us about talk, about uh, how we were attacking political corruption uh, because they were friends with the administration, which in the late 1990s was the Clinton administration. Uh, so this is this is something that I that I've noticed has, has been uh, an issue uh, for quite some time. Uh, it's only started to take on a much more sinister tone and a much more aggressive tone, uh, probably within the past, say, 10 or 15 years, though. Yeah, that that seems to be true. As with so many things culturally, it seems to be escalating, right? That the 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 rate of growth seems to be um, picking up. Now, you've worked inside corporate America and you've studied this issue. Uh, from your perspective, is the move is the move left by corporate America? Is this driven by? Profit margin, they think this is the best way to make money. Is this people within these companies who are just, these are their an expression of their own personal political beliefs? Do they think they just need to do this to survive? What do you think is primarily driving this? Well, I, I think there are two, there are two types of actors uh, in this drama. Um, the first is the true believer. Uh, and not only are they true believers, but they're Gnostics. Uh, they believe that they understand uh, the way to um, move American business and American uh, society more generally toward a happier, more peaceful, more productive, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they understand this better than anyone and in ways that nobody else has ever understood it before. Uh, but there's a second group as well uh, that sees uh, that this is very profitable uh, and has, has jumped on the bandwagon and, and very much would like to make as much money as they can, uh, you know, uh, similar to St. Augustine before they are uh, converted uh, to uh, sure. the faith. Now, d- does the does the data suggest that this is profitable? I mean, we've seen companies do this in various ways. We go back to you know Walmart exerting pressures uh, on on state legislators five six years ago. We see what Major League Baseball is doing. Uh, we saw what Target did. Is there reason? for these corporate boardrooms to believe that if we move hard to the left and we do so publicly, that this is going to improve our profit margins? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think there's any reason for them to believe that. I think uh, that um, a lot of uh, corporate executives are scared. Um, they're scared of their employees. Uh, they're scared of outside activists. And they're scared uh, of some of their more uh, prominent and larger uh, activist shareholders. Mm-hmm. And, and that's primarily what motivates them, is, is their fear that if they don't do something, uh, that they're going to suffer the consequences. Uh, consequences. And, and specifically with, res- with respect to uh, these large asset management firms, um, a lot of them have made it uh, a priority and a very public priority that they will push corporations either to change their behavior or they will use uh, their leverage uh, as large shareholders to mm-hmm. change uh, executives, to change boards of directors, and to change bylaws of the company. So, is, so when you talk about these these holding companies that are invested in some of these companies, is is this as simple as somebody from one one of these asset managers? They they make a phone call to to a Target, to a Major League Baseball, to an American Airlines, to a Delta Airlines, and they say, "Hey, we need you to do this or else." Or is it more subtle than that? Well, it's probably more subtle than that. Although, you know, I can't say for sure. Um, Larry Fink, who is the 
CEO of BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world um, with almost $9 trillion in assets under management, has made it clear over the past two years uh, that he believes uh, that there is a certain uh, social and environmental standard that his company wishes for the companies that they invest in uh, to maintain. And if they do not maintain those standards, uh, that his his firm, with its $9 trillion in leverage, uh, will punish them uh, and will move to uh, change management and to change directors. And, you know, when you have that kind of leverage, you can understand why somebody would actually, why that would be pressure that might work. Now, um, Steve, in, in your book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business, and we encourage you to go get that book, you talk about how the traditional left has died. What do you mean by that? Well, I, what we mean by that is that um, the economic left, the left that was, uh, you know, that grew out of Marx and uh, dominated uh, Western Europe throughout uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, has, has largely uh, been abandoned. Uh, the economic theories that Mark, Marx presented uh, were pretty clearly a failure. Um, his predictions for uh, revolution were also pretty clearly uh, failures. Um, and so in response, uh, the Marxists uh, both uh, – at the end of World War One, and then at the end of World War Two, again, uh, had to figure out how to respond to that. And the way they responded was essentially to say, you know, this isn't about us. This isn't about the economy. This is about the culture. Um, we need to change the culture before we can change anything else. Uh, and and so that has prim become the primary focus uh, of the left in the West uh, ever since is to uh, change the culture and to capture the cultural institutions rather than to focus specifically uh, on uh, economics and controlling the means of production. When you say that, it's interesting to me because when you hear the term culture warrior, um, I think most people would associate that with kind of conservative Christian right-wing activism. Do you think that the left-wing is is culture warring just as aggressively? Oh, I, I think more so. Um, I the uh, in the the uh, early 1920s, uh, you know, Antonio Gramsci, uh, the Italian uh, Marxist, uh, and Lukash, the Hungarian Marxist, uh, and then uh, a handful of German Marxists who eventually uh, sort of uh, became the uh, Frankfurt School, um, acknowledged that. Uh, their revolution didn't occur because the uh, hegemonic culture uh, mm -hmm. prevented workers from understanding uh, their true selves and their true um, interests. And so they made a concerted effort and a, and a very aggressive effort to take the institutions of cultural transmission, uh, which they've done over the last hundred years. They've taken right. uh, media and entertainment and education and mainstream religion, and now they finally reached the last institution that had been resistant to this, uh, which is uh, big business. Now, I've had this conversation with people because in the, in the first few months, first hundred days of the Biden administration, it, it's been curious how much he has prioritized transgender issues with his, his executive orders, with the Equality Act, 
are these related in any sense? Because it's not a it's not a massive voting block. Do you think there's any connection, kind of what the what the corporate world is trying to do culturally, and uh, and President Biden's um, prioritization of these issues, which are certainly cultural issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think that you know if you put Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock and uh, President Biden. Uh, in a room and had them talk about these issues that either one of them would grasp the connection. But the the transformation uh, of Western civilization uh, focused very heavily on on sexual behavior, uh, sexual rules, sexual mores, uh, because both the the early uh, post World War One Marxists and then mm-hmm. later Herbert Marcuse uh, and some of the critical theorists in the United States focused very, very, very uh, heavily on uh, sexual behavior, seeing right. sex and uh, sexual perversity and, and sexual uh, uh, dynamism, I guess, uh, as the key to undermining the traditional Christian uh, cultural yeah. uh, Milieu, uh, and, and so yes, they, they focus very heavily on, on on sexual behavior and specifically on encouraging uh, what would have traditionally been considered aberrant or very very fringe uh, sexual action. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this is very much a part of it. And, and, a, and a moral revolution takes place when that which was once celebrated is now condemned, and that which was once condemned is now celebrated. And we can see on a whole range of issues how that has taken place. Now, Steve, um, what recommend? You know, we would if the goal here is to depoliticize business. What do you recommend? How do, how do you see that happening, or do you see that happening? Well, um, I, it's not going to be easy. Um, there are two steps, I think, that need to be taken, or two different strategies that need to be taken. The first of which uh, is to, um, you know, an, an immediate strategy to understand what's going on, uh, to learn who's responsible, to learn who's doing it and, and why they're doing it, and then to take back what is yours. Uh, take back the capital that you have invested uh, in your retirement fund, in your 401k, in your IRA, uh, and use that. Uh, more specifically, uh, to invest in funds or in corporations that don't promote political ideas above uh, shareholder value. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, uh, take back your consumer dollars and spend them uh, where you feel comfortable. So take back what is yours, uh, understand what the problem is, take back what is yours. Um, the, the second strategy, which is a much longer-term strategy, uh, is that we're going to have to uh, – make the long march back through the institutions. We will have to take these institutions back uh, that the cultural left took uh, over the last century. And and that's going to take probably uh, several decades, so it's not something that we can anticipate uh, starting now and being done with it the next couple of years. It's going to be a long, hard slog. We, it, was, it was a it was a long, slow march to get to this point, and so it it it. Uh it makes sense that it's going to be a long, slow march back to that point, but the alternative is quitting, which I'm certainly not open to that 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 idea. Um, you talk about how people can put their funds places that are that are not undermining what we're trying to do culturally. How do you, how do how do the average investor find that? Do you have any recommendations for where somebody can go to make sure that they're not in their 401k funding the enemy, so to speak? Well, you you, you get a quarterly statement uh, that will tell you. Uh, what funds uh, your uh, your retirement 
savings are invested in, um, and, and you can look. Um, and basically, if you see anything that says BlackRock or State Street or even Vanguard now, what you'll have to, what you'll understand is that even if they're not explicitly uh, socially responsible or ESG friendly, they are nevertheless because of the pronouncements uh, of their uh, CEO of the CEOs of these these asset management firms, they are directly contributing to this idea that uh, corporations should be overtly political. Now, Steve, we, we've talked kind of about the, the investment, uh, the institutional money side of this. There's also in, in the corporate space, there's the social media companies, which in, in many ways control the, the public conversations. Um, they Many people would argue they've become public forums, so they're no longer private companies. Where do you fall on that? Well, uh, the, the social media companies, um, I'm less concerned about than I am uh, about, for example, Amazon's uh, domination of the web services arena. Mm -hmm. okay. um, you know, it, it, it was it was bad enough, and it was yeah. – uh, unfortunate for Apple and Google to remove Parler from their app yeah. stores. Uh, but when uh, Apple Web Services took them off uh, the Internet, that was the huge blow. Steve Sukup, we're going to have to cut you off there because we are out of time. But we thank you very much for your time. And, and folks, go pick up this book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. You won't be sad you did. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for joining us today. We look forward to being with you tomorrow as we break down America's problems and what you can do about it here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.